not like all of a sudden God looks on someone and is like, well, that person's not really worth all that much to me. All human life is valued and all human life is sacred. The only value human life has lost is at our hands, in our minds. such a clean and perfect truth and not mess it up. So Lord, would you please meet us here this morning? Help us in that mysterious way by your Spirit where you take your Word and apply it to our hearts and reveal to us truth there is within. God, if there are places in our hearts where we've hardened ourselves and we've become less receptive than we ought to be, if receptive at all, We ask here in this place that you would change and soften those areas. Lord, in places where many people are just broken, there's no other words to describe it, we're broken. Would you restore? Would you conform us to that image of holiness, which is the greatest joy for each one of our lives? Would you teach us and would you lead us? We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Today is the last sermon in the book of Jonah. The last one. I'm, I'm broken hearted myself. This has been such a, such a long and uh, joyful path that we've been on. I've been excited to talk to people about different things that have uh, been coming up as people have been studying and reading through this awesome, awesome book. We're just going to be in the last several verses in the the book of Jonah this morning. So if you'd open up to Jonah chapter 4. There's been some crazy, crazy stuff happening in this book. Amen? I mean, how many of us want to be in the place of Jonah? None of us, right? It's a a really, really difficult book for us to thumb through. And the reason is because we can relate to him so much more than we actually can. See him as this man that rebelled. It's God, and we're like, yeah, him, not me. Yeah, him, but definitely not me. So we stand with our chronological snobbery, and we think, well, if I were in his shoes, I would have done things differently. Yet as we've been studying the book, I pray that everyone's seen something much, much different than that. Something much more beautiful. Something much more simple. Perhaps you, like I, have found that you can identify with Jonah much, much more than you thought you could at the beginning. So today we're talking about the great city. Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. But before we do that, we have our memory verse that we've been working on as a church, as a family, as a congregation. We're going to do that this morning. Let's all read this verse together. Again, I'll read the red 
And then everyone will read the white, and then we'll all go back through one more time and read everything. Jonah 4, 2b. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This time like you've memorized it. This time like you're excited about the truth that's in this verse. Jonah 4, 2b. All together. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God we serve. That's the God we serve. So here we find ourselves in the end of the book of Jonah. And uh, let's just read through the verse real quick. The verses we're going to be reading. I know this is a little dark. It's going to be different here in a second. I promise. I lightened that up quite a bit. But God said to Jonah, this is verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah is a wonderful and powerful book. My intention, my full intention in going into this book and doing this study was so that all of us, not just myself, not just you, but all of us together, would abandon our Sunday school theology. We need to get rid of that stuff. And as we found, as we've been going through, a lot of stuff that we saw in coloring pages, a lot of stuff that we sang songs about is in the Bible, just to help us memorize things. But they gave us an ill picture of Jonah. And I've said this on every sermon, and I want to say it one more time, one last time, as I have the opportunity to, because next week, when we're studying the book of James, it'll be really out of place for me to say something about Jonah. If Jonah is a story, if Jonah is a story about Jonah's growing in compassion by the end of the story, it is the worst story about compassion ever composed. Because Jonah is no better in the end than he was in the beginning, and we'll see that as we close with today's sermon. Jonah is a character that we don't necessarily want to identify with. Yet surprisingly, when you spend as much time as we have in the past few months in this book, it becomes unavoidable. Amen? Don't you see more and more of yourself as you look at Jonah? Just a little bit more and more of a reflection of yourself. He is both obedient and disobedient when it is convenient for him. But never ever considers, listen to this, he never ever considers God's greater purposes. When it's convenient for him to obey, he does. When it's, when it's convenient for him to disobey, he does. Or when con- obey, obedience excuse me, would be convenient for him, then he definitely steers away from that. But apart from convenient obedience, Jonah rebels against both the word and the will of God. Remember, that's the title of our entire sermon series, Word and Will, because that's what we've been talking about the entire time. Jonah's rebellion against both God's word and his will. But why does he rebel? Because he doesn't like it when God calls him to do something that will be seemingly painful to him. Anybody else feel that way? When God calls us to do something that seems like it will be seemingly painful to us, we would rather hop on a ship and head to Nineveh. See, there's a lot of us in Jonah, a lot of Jonah in us. We can see this reflection 
Apart from that, he is willing to jeopardize God's will. We see in Jonah a man who will reluctantly do the will of God, even though he holds on to his judgments and prejudices. This is so important. In the end of the story, by the time he's vomited up onto the seashore, by the time he's brushing the sand and whale saliva, stomach acid, off from his person, Jonah is willing to go and do the word of the, word of the Lord. But he's very, very reluctant. He still wants what he initially believed should happen to happen to these people. And lastly, we see a man who's Value-appropriating capacity is biased by his judgments and prejudices. Great city. All of a sudden, there we go. God exposes our hearts with truth. God exposes our hearts with truth. Spiritual blindness causes a misappropriation of value. God values His image-bearers and all that is his. I know everything's really, really wordy this week. I tried to shorten this up the best that I possibly could for those that take notes and just to, to help us comprehend things better. But this is what I come up with. Misappropriation of value. I know that's, that's kind of huge there, but that's what it is. Today is the most important sermon of the whole book. It's the most important one out of everything we've read so far. It is the first day that you're with us, as some are. You picked a good day to come because this is the most important sermon out of everything that we've read so far, everything that we've studied so far. God exposes our hearts with truth. Spiritual blindness causes a misappropriation of value, and God values his image bearers. This is so vitally important. The big idea for today's sermon, and really the big idea for the entire book of Jonah, is God's value on his image bearers. And... His pursuit of those who bear his image. I don't know if anybody's picked up on it, but God's will in the story is that his word gets to the Ninevites. That was the whole point of him calling Jonah to begin with. He wanted him to take his word to the Ninevites. That's what God has wanted to happen. And we know that this message will eventually bring about repentance and ultimately salvation. God is saving people throughout this entire great story. God is Savior through the entire story of Jonah. Think about that for just a moment. God sees Nineveh. God sends Jonah. Why? So that he tells them to, so that they'll be destroyed. They'll hear this message and be destroyed. But we know ultimately they repent and they are saved. So God not only sends Jonah so that Nineveh will hear this message and repent. God also saves the mariners. You all remember that? Here they are. The ship is threatening to be torn apart by the wind and the waves. God saves them by their obedience and tossing Jonah over. Jonah is all but drowning. The water is in his lungs. He talks about it in his prayer in chapter 3. He talks about this time that he had inside the whale. Excuse me, chapter 2. He's drowning. He's on the verge of death. And God saves him in a way that we wouldn't particularly choose to be saved. He has a whale come and swallow Jonah. Then Jonah finds himself in another sticky circumstance, in the belly of the whale, and God saves him from this also. Ultimately, Jonah goes and preaches the message, Nineveh repents, and God also saves them. Is God done with saving? Not quite yet. Jonah is fatigued and feels as though he will die because of the sun and the heat 
God saves him from his discomfort by sending a plant. You see, God's all about salvation in this entire book. He saves and saves and saves. And I can't help but wonder about the inward rebellion. Does everyone understand how amazing it is that even though Jonah is wayward, God is still communicating directly to him? God never stops speaking directly to him. Does everyone understand that? He hears God's voice. And with all that he says and does, though reluctantly saying yes outwardly, inwardly he's saying no. We have the full and complete revelation of Scripture. We have all 66 books in front of us, and it is so vitally complete. And I wonder, I'm asking this so that everyone will probe themselves this morning, how many of us are reading it daily? And though outwardly we're saying yes, and we are doing what God calls us to do, inwardly we're saying no. We're rebelling in our hearts. We're willing to give God the part of our life where we'll go and volunteer and show the gospel here, but we're withholding something deep within. Inwardly, we are doing it reluctantly. I wonder how many of us that describes this morning. Though we have the complete word of God and we know what we're supposed to do, I wonder how many of us like Jonah are saying yes on the outside and no inwardly. That's the first thing that God speaks to this morning in this passage. He speaks to our unbalanced obedience. How does he do that? Well, God exposes our hearts with truth. God exposes our hearts with truth. I love the way that God approaches his children because it's awesome. Because we fail as parents if we don't speak to our children in this way. He allows Jonah to work all these things out in his own heart. Look at what he says here. This is so vitally important. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Remember, I told you last week, he asked this question twice. Do you do well to be angry? This time more specific. The first time he says, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah builds. The second time, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah answers. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. This is a probing question, and we all need to understand something about what God's asking here. God is not taking an inventory for himself of Jonah's heart. God is not asking this question so that he can figure out what's going on inside of Jonah. He's not asking it because he isn't sure what Jonah's answer is going to be. God already knows all. Amen? He knows all. So this question is not for God. Who's the question for? Everyone say it. It's for Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Plant? Probing question. But the question is not for God's benefit, but Jonah's. Do you think that God gives us trials so that he can see where we are in our faith? So that he can see whether or not we'll rely on him for our next step? No. God knows the next thing he sends your way or allows to come your way, he knows where you're going to place your next foot. He knows. He's not giving you this thing so he can figure out where you are and figure out how faithful you are. No, God knows how faithful you are. So if he doesn't give these things 
for himself to figure out where you are, then must be he allows these things to come to you so that we can figure out where we are. Amen? So when we have a financial struggle that God allows to come our way, we can sit back and say, whoa, how did I get here? Am I being faithful with my finances the way that God has called me to do? If we have a problem in our relationships and all of a sudden this trial comes and it's a struggle, we can take a step back and search ourselves and say, whoa, how did I get here? What's happening? What does God want me to do here? What's his will? This question is not for God's benefit. It's for Jonah's. Change, real change, is not necessary unless there is a problem. So I say that, and it sounds like something big and open, so let me kind of drive it home a little bit. Change, real change in a person's life, is not necessary unless we know there is a problem. Do you know when most struggling marriages get better? When both people realize there's a problem. The couple together acknowledges the problem and wants to correct it, then they have a better marriage. What happens if one in the marriage notices the problem, but the other doesn't? Will it ever be fixed? All God's people said, no, it can't. It won't. Why? Because as the old adage goes, if it ain't broke, say it. Don't fix it. You and I know this is so true. If you think everything in your life is peachy, things will never change. Husbands that think life is perfect while their wives are in misery, they'll never change. The marriage will never get better, and vice versa. Marriage is a great example here because we are the bride of Christ. People do not get out of debt because they love debt. They realize debt is a problem. Amen? You don't get out of debt because you love debt. You get out of debt because you realize debt is a problem. People do not shed off pounds and become healthier because they love to be unhealthy. They want to change. You have to notice a problem. You have to identify this problem before we can ever begin to work on it. People don't get into shape because they love being out of shape. They see a problem and make changes accordingly. Spiritually, the same principles apply. God is the one in the marriage who knows the problem. However, he has perfect knowledge of the problem. He has perfect knowledge of exactly what's wrong here. He knows all, even the depths of yours and my heart. And he exposes these things not so he can know whether or not we have a problem. He knows there's a problem. But so he can expose it to us. I need everyone to understand this. This is so vitally important. God is not confirming something at this point with Jonah. He's not confirming for himself at this point Jonah's heart. He already knows Jonah's heart. And for yours and my struggles and troubles and trials that we go through, God's not trying to see where we stand. He knows already. He's showing us where we stand so we can see the problem. Think about it for just a moment. Just, just, I really want to press this point. It takes the same revealing to Job. In the end of the book, what does God end up doing? Asking Job a series of what? Questions. Is it because God doesn't know the answers? No, they're rhetorical. He knows the answers. It's so Job will question himself. Job will question where he is. God is doing the same thing with Jonah. He does it with his disciples. Think about this for a second. Who do you say that I am? Does Jesus know at that point who the disciples believe him to be? All God's people said yes. 
So what's the point? Because it rolls off Peter's lips. It's the first time Peter says it. You are the Christ. It doesn't end there. He asks another probing question. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Jesus knows the answer to this question already. It's not so that he can find out where the disciples stand. He knows where they stand. It's so that he can show them where they stand. Sits with Peter on the shore and says, Do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus knows how Peter feels about him. This is a probing question for Peter so he will understand where he is. God does this all the time, all throughout the scriptures. God does this continually, and the purpose is to expose our hearts through self-examination. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? What's Jonah's response? Yes, I do well. It's amazing. We do nothing well. Only God is good. He says, well, yeah, my anger is righteous. Yes, I do well to be angry. But notice what he has regard for and what he has no regard for. He has absolutely no regard for human life, even for his own. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do. I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. This book is so contemporary. For the loss of temporary comforts, he wants to forfeit his own life. This is sad and all too common. A plant pops up, gives him some temporary comforts, and when it's taken, he no longer wants to live. He does not even value his own life. He's willing to forfeit it. When life loses its value, we will give it up for reasons that are not worthy of it. When life loses its value, we will give it up for reasons that are not worthy of it. We as Christians must stand for life. We live in a time where life is always being examined. The value of life is always being examined. And if life loses its value, we will always give it up for something not worthy of it. Point number two, spiritual blindness causes misappropriation of value. The Bible teaches us that life is sacred. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. How many of you are sad because your tomatoes are not doing well this year? You may feel like Jonah a little bit. I don't know. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The Bible teaches us that life is sacred, valuable, and therefore to be both treasured and protected. God values the dignity of a human life so much. Genesis 9, we're told that if someone takes someone else's life, they've taken something that cannot be restored, that person loses his life. That's how serious God values a human life. But if we're spiritually blinded, we will assess value as we feel it is deserved. Think for a second. Think about the most atrocious time within human history that you can think of. Think of the most atrocious time, the most horrible moments in human history, a stain that is on our human history. 
This was the ideology behind the Nazi concentration camps. The Jews were devalued. They're not even humans. And therefore their lives were not worthy. They were not worth being protected. They were expendable under Hitler. He trained his men to believe that the Jews were not even human. So they would suffer under the hands of the Nazi regime. Hitler was spiritually blind and had a great deal of power and millions suffered under the ideology of Nazi Germany. This is so important. Every single time you and I devalue a human being, we are doing the same exact thing. Every single time. We consider a human being as worthless. We are spiritually blind. Spiritual blindness is a term that means you or I, if we are spiritually blind, have no biblical grounding for making that assessment. There is never a time in our lives where we will be able to look on a human life and say that that life is not valued because the Bible says that it is. The only way we can make that assessment is if we are spiritually blind. Millions of men, women, children, and babies have suffered under that ideology, and it continues today. This morning, in places all over the world, in the U.S., this is happening. Spiritual blindness causes a person to devalue another person and reckon their life is not worth keeping. It's worthless. And Jesus says that when we do this, it's equivalent to murder. Do we really understand that? Do we understand the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus lets those words out, what he's teaching? God views devaluing human life in your heart as murder, whether or not you or I have actually killed that person. So when Jonah looks out across the sea of people in the great city, understand that he has already committed murder in his heart against them because he wants them destroyed. They're doing wrong in your sight, God. They are growing in power. They are going to come get us. They should be destroyed. He's a murderer in his heart. And God is at work to expose this. He's blind. Jonah is blind to the plight of these people. He says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? It's not even like Jonah has lost anything here. The plant wasn't something that he made, he didn't make the plant. He didn't plant the seed. He didn't water it. He did nothing for this thing to come about. It was all God. He lost nothing of his own. Nothing. Yet Jonah is so distraught by his loss, he's willing to die. What's amazing here is though Jonah is willing to die for a plan in which he had nothing to do with bringing about, Jesus Jesus comes and dies for that which is rightfully his. Why? Because Jonah was spiritually blinded, and he looked at the withered plant, and he looked at the ones out there that he wanted dead. And Jesus saw clearly while they came to arrest him. Understand, Jesus saw clearly what was happening that night. He had already spoken about it at the dinner table and many times before that. He saw clearly as the footsteps sounded toward him. He saw clearly as they beat him on the face. 
With every lash of the whip on his back, with every tear in his flesh, Jesus saw clearly the value of that which is his. With every strike of the nail as it was driven through his flesh, nail on the cross, he made and assessed value to you and to me and took the condemnation that Jonah wishes would be placed on these people on himself. Jonah wants them destroyed. He wants hell on their shoulders. Jesus sees hell bound for our shoulders and takes it on his. Why? Why does he do this? Because God values you. God values image bearers. I don't know what you've been told about your worth. I spent a lot of my life, my childhood, hearing all kinds of things about my worth that it took me much later in life to realize until I became a Christian weren't true. I heard about my being worthless on many occasions. I'm sure, I'm sure many people have here. When you are told you are worthless, if you are spiritually blinded after a while, you believe it. You don't really believe life is worth all that much. You don't believe your life is worth all that much. For years I believed that stuff. I have trained all my life that my life was assessed as worthless. But it's only as we come to this place in Scripture, see God's view and God's assessment of, of life, that we realize how valuable it truly is. This brings us to our third and final point. God values his image bearers and all that is his. God values his image bearers. Do you know? I mean, yes, we say this. This is one of those things that maybe we just say all the time, but we don't really think about. Do you know that God values you? God values you as a person. Individually, God values you. He loves you. He sets his affection upon you. He values you. He values those that are believers. He values those that are not believers. He values those that are heaven-bound. He values those that are hell-bound. It does not matter where your eternal destiny is. God values all human life. All human life. Not because of our wit or a sense of humor. We need to get that nonsense out of our head. God doesn't care about the things you can do. He does not care. He values both the child that cannot walk, talk, open his eyes, just as much as he values the athlete that can do much work for him in third world countries. Why? Because you and I were made in the Imago Dei. We were made in the image of God. We were made in His likeness. This gives us both dignity and value. It gives all human life dignity and value. You're not worthless. You're not worthless. And maybe, you know, you need to hear that this morning. You're not. Maybe these sermons go up online. Maybe someone that's going to be listening to this this week needs to hear that. You're not worthless. You are not worthless. God values your life. No matter where you are, God values you. He values your image bearers. Where am I getting all this from? Where is it even coming from? The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Do you understand that Jonah cared more about the life of a plant that came up one day and died the next? It was alive for a matter of hours. More than he cares about human life. 
120,000 people that he wants to perish. He wants them all to be wiped out. He does not value as God values. You have value, you have dignity, whether or not you believe. Because you are his image bearers. You're valued by your creator. doesn't matter what we've been told by anybody else. Their opinion, their assessment of value does not matter. And what God reveals to Jonah here is he has a misappropriation of value. We have to watch ourselves when we're outside these doors or even inside these doors that we don't fall into the same mistake that Jonah did. You can't look at another person and devalue them or act as though they are not worth something or they really have no purpose. Because you're disagreeing with God, you're disagreeing with Scripture, you're shaking your fist at Him. So you pity the plant for which you did not labor. But look what, Jonah, or what God says to Jonah here is amazing. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? The word persons here is very generic. I get it. We see persons, we're like, yeah, yeah, uh, that doesn't really stand out to me. It doesn't really matter all that much. The word for persons here is Adam, which is the same term that God used to name man the day he created man and placed on man his image and his likeness. It is only man upon whom of all other creation, it's only man which we're told God formed from the dust in his hands and breathed into his light, into his lungs, into his nostrils, the breath of, what is it? Life. He didn't do that to the sheep, the donkeys, the cows. He only did that to man. And since that day, the only value that human life has lost has been at the hands of us. It's not like all of a sudden God looks on someone and he's like, well, that person's not really worth all that much to me. All human life is valued and all human life is sacred. The only value human life has lost is at our hands, in our minds. We value all life. In the womb, on the deathbed, no matter what, we value all life because we're told to. He said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. God declares in the book of Isaiah, such a beautiful passage. Why do you regard man in whose nostrils is breath? I love that and I memorized it because it is the verse that you need for most of the time you walk out on this earth, out in this world. Because people are assessing you all the time. And what does God say? Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. There should be in our lives, in your life and my life, only one assessment of value that matters. It's the one that sent his son, Jesus Christ, down to die for you and to die for me. That we would be spared his wrath. That that wrath would be absorbed by Jesus Christ. That we might spend eternity not only calling him God, but calling him Father. Being brought in his family. Jonah cared more for a weed than the image bearers. What God asks, should I not care? Should I not pity the 120,000 people in Nineveh? 
That should have been argument enough for Jonah, but it wasn't. He goes on to say, who do not know their right hand from their left. Two people asked me about that, or mentioned it. They have no idea of the law. They don't have the law. They have the law that's written in their hearts. They don't know what they are supposed to be doing to please God. They don't have a moral code other than the one that's written on their hearts by which to live by. God's saying, shouldn't I pity them? They don't even know some of the wrong that they're doing is wrong. We're not told exactly what they're doing. There are some ideas that are given to us in commentaries. I don't put much stock into any of them. All we know is that the evil is in their hands and they are carrying it forth. The king of Nineveh says this. Should I not pity them? They are morally broken. They haven't the same level of truth to live by that Jonah and the Israelites do. More pointedly, Jonah was given the word, and what did he do? He disobeyed. Nineveh is given the word, and what do they do? They repent. In a way, if we were going to assess moral value, it seems like the Ninevites are more moral persons than Jonah even is. Who is worth more pity? Who is worth more destruction? Further, and by no mistake, God adds cattle. And he says this, it seems like kind of like a last minute thought, but it isn't at all. God owns what, everybody? Everything. Cattle are used for food and sacrifice, and they are also of no value to Jonah. We live in very, very difficult times today. The time that we live in is very, very tough. And there are decisions that are in front of all of us and decisions in front of our leaders. We need to pray. And I want to leave you with this truth because it's so important. Though times are difficult for us, though they're tough for us, they are not for God. It's not like God looks down on all this stuff and says, oh, what am I going to do now? My whole plan's messed up. Since the fall of man, God has not lost one ounce of authority. Not one. Amen? Whether or not we choose to give Him authority over our lives doesn't matter. He still has it. You need to ask us, can I give you this better job? Can I take this job away? None of us have had that conversation with God. Is it okay if I take from you this thing? God doesn't do that. God owns everything. He has lost not one ounce of authority. Even in this time, He has not lost. He isn't dead. And the value that He gives is the only value that matters. Friends, He sent us into a world full of image bearers, fellow image bearers. And he's given us the task to value them as he does. And to act with both temporal and eternal eyes according to the truth. This is the world that he sends us into. Yes, we pray for truth to win and for justice to go forth. But we also pray for the full restoration of God's image. Which we know now is to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And we are called to his image bearers to be a voice for justice, true justice, and light 
in the darkness. We're called to be salt. We're called to take this message out of this place. We can't be like Jonah, everybody. We really, really, really have to look on the world around us and realize their value to God and that God wants man to be saved. You think God just wants people's eternal destination to be changed? No way. The Bible does not tell us that heaven is a place to which we go. The Bible tells us in the end, heaven is a place that comes to us. We want a people prepared for Christ's return. Amen? We must value people and live accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, we have been lied to. Each one of us here have been lied to. We have assessed value according to our own worldly standards and not according to truth. And it has been a stain on humanity. Father, help us to be strong and look on humanity as you do with love for the weak and value and dignity for the strong. Help us to value all your image bearers equally, whether or not they're our friends or family. Give us grace in our conversations and truth by which we can address the injustice of our day. We trust you and your gospel and offer up our bodies at a living sacrifice. We offer up our bodies that, Father, we might be soldiers of yours in this battle that's in front of us. God, it's so difficult for us to, for us to trust. It's so difficult for us to look and understand what you're doing, yet we know you've called us to do this. Lord, give us patience. Help us to live out a life of sacrifice, praise. Lord, help us to start here.